And welcome to part two of our first episode where we're chatting to Almiru Oosthuizen. We are going to continue right where we left off. So without any more chit-chat, let's get back into it. Um, just uh, briefly, when we previously spoke, you mentioned about a project that you're working on with the uh, clinical psychologist in the West Coast sub-district and how much time you've saved. But the, the, the West Coast thing falls within a habitat that we would call connecting architecture. So a habitat, habitats are themes of opportunities and ideas that make sense together. Like if you think about what we just spoke about, the, the clinician-facing administrative support, that would be in the broader habitat of more optimal work. How do we add more optimal work into the system? How do we enable people to do more optimal value, work? Value-added work. Exactly. And so... Clinic, so um, CFAS or clinician-facing administrative support would be an, an example of that. But um, clinical procedures support. So a phlebotomist, for instance, doing bloods mm. and drips at a fraction of the cost of an expensive senior clinician, that maybe that would be a similar mm. kind of benefit and it would need to be explored. Remember, it's an idea. It's not the truth yet. Mm. Um, a, a little bit more on that just now. But there's a habitat that we call connecting architecture. And, and basically what it just means is that we're kind of okay at knowing what people need, given all the caveats of our preceding conversation. And we're kind of okay with knowing what services we have available, again, with the caveats of the conversation. But we, we assume that those two things will take care of each other. We assume that the patient will come to the service because they need it. Or we assume that the service will be mobile and go to the patient, but now it's a distinct service. Yeah, you, if you go to the patient, you, you're not giving them much choice in what you're giving them. And so, in actual fact, the, what we think is that there's a third and distinct element in this value pipeline from need to service, which sits right in the middle, that's called connecting architecture. Yeah. And at the moment the majority of our connecting architecture options implies physical travel. The patient has to travel to me or the service has to travel to the patient. That's about it. Now, there's a lot that can be done within physical travel. But telehealth becomes an entire additional domain of connecting architecture especially where the service transaction doesn't necessarily require physical intervention. Now, telehealth is a whole different discussion. Mm -hmm. But if you take, for instance, let's take the example that you mentioned in West Coast. So, so the West Coast Health District starts just side of Marmersbury and goes up to the Northern Cape. And mm. it's a massive a huge, area, 750,000 people. Yeah, and it's similar in sort of resource and and... Uh, uh, distance between locations as many of the places in the rest of South Africa. Exactly. Yeah. And now can you imagine just the logistical and other challenges faced by both the system side and the patient side if I'm living up in the Matsikama district and I have a health need that can only be met in Marmersbury mm. because of how we've logistically fragmented service. 
just imagine. And uh, then and then imagine you have to get transferred from Malmesbury to Tigerberg. I understand. Yeah. And so now this person in, in Matsikama, it's it's like multiple weeks of salary if they were to self-fund yeah. that transport. That's if they had money. Yeah. But now let's take an example of a mental health transaction, like a clinical psychologist consultation. If there's a clinical, if the clinical psychologist is in Malmesbury and not in Matsikama, and so now that person would have to do six to eight hundred kilometers round trip for a physical outreach, mm. which would be our it's like the whole day for maybe three patients of which two can get there because we haven't resolved their access issues. Yeah. Versus if we can assist them with a telehealth cockpit, and remember telemental health is the most well-established form of telehealth. Yeah. Um, so much research, so much experience and expertise, very well established during COVID to the point now where many patients and clinicians prefer telemental health for certain kinds of yeah, not, not for all, but not for, for all, but for certain kinds of certain, certain kinds. kinds of people, certain kinds of but that, it's the right that they that they have identified exactly. Yeah, not us. Yeah. So, for instance, a, a, a colleague of mine um, only does when he himself accesses, you know, counselling mm. only telemental health. He said he would only do it that way, even if the person was in a building next door, because that's that person's personal preference. Yeah. Me, I like to be able to smell someone. <laughs> so, so I want to go there and again that's giving agency to people yes giving them options yeah. what do they value yeah. but now if we have a telehealth connection between those two spots then in the same time actually we can calculate out that that clinical psychologist current monthly monthly outreach service bundle can be met in less than 16 working hours using a telehealth model so that's a monthly working or that's a working month of 22 days in 16 hours in terms so of that's in terms of their outreach budget. so that's actually that's two days so you can think now if we just take this one loop so on a day that that ther- th- you know therapist would have had to be on the road for six to eight hours doing six to eight hundred kilometers to see two patients Mm. They can now do hour-long consultations. They can see eight patients in a working day in the comfort of where they are. Um, So it's four times what they would have seen in that one day. And you're saving the environmental impact of the petrol, the risk to the staff of road traffic accidents, Mm. the cost of petrol and transport, all the... And on the other side of that transaction, so in Matsikama, maybe... Not for all, but maybe for some of them thinkers. So there are registered counselors and all sorts of mm. other people there. So maybe now that telehealth architecture, that connecting architecture, can also be actually used, if we think, to the three domains for staff development. Staff training, staff development. If the patient's fine with it, the counselor can sit in and learn. So that actually leads me to a question that I wrote down, is that... From my experience in South Africa, across the various provinces and rural areas especially, there's an abundance of very junior doctors, mostly community service people, and mostly people with a sort of a lack of senior decision-making capacity. They've been exposed to senior decision-making during their internships and during their student days, but when it actually comes to making decisions themselves, there's often uh, they 
get thrown completely in the deep end when they go out to a place like Uniondale. And that isn't the failing because, you know, it takes 10 years to get 10 years of experience. Exactly. So it's not the fault of that's, that individual no, person no for being fault. inexperienced, you know. But yeah, how right. do we, and I, I feel like a lot of transfers, a lot of decisions, a lot of um, waiting eight hours on a, for an ambulance and phoning Pretoria for advice from from Acorn Hook or somewhere, something like that. A lot of it can be mitigated completely by more diversely spread senior decision-making availability. And if somebody has access to somebody that can make a decision, that would not be necessary a lot of the time. All of that, all of that frustrating fight, the weight, the transfer, etc. And a big component of senior decision-making is knowing when not to do something rather than when to do something. And I yeah. feel that there's that's, so much that that's is... That's the dark arts, man. That's difficult stuff. That takes time to it learn. It takes time to learn. But if you mm. can... And so it takes time to learn. It takes guts to execute. Um, but it would... If there's more availability to it when something is redundant, when something is futile, when something can be managed conservatively... Or, or, conser- or conservative management is the best option for the patient, that would save so much trouble for so many people. So you've touched on a lot of it already, but how can we sort of diversify that senior decision-making capacity and availability to everyone else? Again, like, like your earlier sort of systems design thing is, I don't know, but I think that there are real options and here more concrete options than our earlier quite theoretical discussion. Yeah. Um, Leading into that, if you're listening to this, do yourself a favor, make your life better, and just go check out Jobs to be Done Theory by Clayton Christensen. So go to Jobs to be Done, Clayton Christensen on YouTube, watch that little video, and grow. Um, What the theory says, is not really a theory, what the practice says, is we don't necessarily really buy something for what it is. We do it because it executes a job for us. There's a job that exists in my life. And so the listeners can't see this, but on the table here now, we have a, a, there's a, a clear glass with um, cold water in, and there's a mug with an ERS. And so both of those things are liquid-containing receptacles. But they're very differently designed because they're executing very difficult, different jobs. So the mug, for instance, has to retain heat, so the ceramic makes sense, and it's really warm for me to grasp initially, so it having an ear makes sense. And teas and coffees aren't necessarily always the nicest thing to look at through glasses, so it's usually opaque. Whereas the glass that we're drinking the cold water out of, it's a totally different set of jobs. And so when you understand the job, the design becomes more precise. Um, not just that, jobs tend to be stable in people's lives over time. For example, there's a universal job that help, and a job statement starts with help me. Help me get this information to a place elsewhere accurately, quickly, and safely. And in the early days, the only job that you, tools that you could have for that job is you'd have to run there. And then maybe someone else could run there. And then maybe it was a horse. And then it was a stagecoach. And then it was a steam train. And then it was a boat. And then it was a plane. And now it's the internet. 
The job stays the same, but the tool set can evolve over time. So when you're considering things that you'd like to do in terms of our service events or in terms of service improvement, it's really useful to have this job um, point of view. And so if we now go back to your scenario, which is, what would be the job statement? So for interest, just interesting, the, the universal job statement of all patients and communities or people are just, help me manage my health without disrupting my life. That's the job statement we have to design towards. Yeah. But now, if you think about that junior doc, like, what might their job dis- description, their, their job statement be? So there might be a job from the perspective of the doc and the system and the Maybe it's something like, help me make the best quality decision that I can, given this problem that I'm having here. But you have to move beyond that because jobs will have practical, emotional, and social domains. So you said earlier, you know, you need courage. And it's because the social or, or the emotional job might be, so help me make the best quality decision here. And then the emotion was, help me feel safe and confident that I've made a good quality decision. Yeah. And maybe the social job here is, maybe it's help me not be perceived as a needy person that has to be asking for advice all the time and can't make my own decisions. So maybe there's a degree of discretion that needs to be built into that job design or whatever else. So that's a little bit of theory, but... Please, if you're listening to this, please go explore around jobs to be done. It's an incredibly accessible and powerful way to think about helping people in more precise ways. But so if we let's let's take that doc in Uniondale, or let's take all the junior docs distributed throughout the Central Karoo district. In Uniondale, Prince Albert, um, Beaufort, all those small little places. Wouldn't it be interesting, so so now using connecting architecture of telehealth, we could potentially now have a mechanism where people can ask responsive real-time advice in an interactive way so that the complexities of that real-world situation can actually be explored because that's what a mentor does, huh? Like the junior might phone the, the, the expert and say, I need to know whether I need to continue care for this critically ill person that I think might die. I, I don't yeah. know. And well, then actually during that exploration, it might go in a completely different direction. But that can only happen in real-time interaction. Yeah. So telehealth. So yeah, so maybe you can do that now. We, we do telephonic advice already. But how do we move beyond telephonic advice? Well, we can use these technologies that we spoke about. But maybe now it starts making financial sense to say that for a health district like Central Karoo or any other rural district in the country, with such a low density and number of experts and such a high density and number of people needing expert advice, you're never going to be able to deploy an expert all over that show. Mm-hmm. And these experts are already working 150% of their time just trying to do their own work. Doesn't it now maybe make sense to actually employ a person or a team of people full-time for a clinician, clinical decision support you? An advice giver. Exactly. Yeah. And you know what? If you do this, well, I tell you how that person could be anywhere in the world. Yeah. I recently spoke to a, to a, um, to a startup that are providing um, nurse-led 
PHC type services to communities. Wonderful model. And they have telehealth decision support by doctors who can be called in and assist when the CNP needs a little bit more advice. These doctors can be anywhere in the world, as long as they're SA registered. And so there's one doc, for instance, who's had to move to Russia with her family for work that her husband does. But she's providing from Russia. And she's probably subjectively providing a lot of value-added work and fulfilling a very, very close to that 80% of her or 100% of her personal capacity. She loves it. Yeah. And just because of the physical location, interestingly because of daylight hours, she's awake when most other people in country would be asleep. So it's super easy for her to provide yeah. after hours cover. Yeah. Um, so they can be anywhere in the world or anywhere in the country. Now, let's take, let's take uh, Central Karua now. I have a real, I know you do too. I have a real love for the Karua. My family is from the Karua. When I go there, it feels like roots are growing out of my feet into it. So I have a very yeah, deep connection yeah. with the Karua. But now, let's take me or you as a, as a proxy for a senior decision maker, whatever else. I told you, listen, I'm going to offer you a job to go live in Liuhamka. I'd have to run it past the wife. And your kids. Yeah. And where the schools. So how likely are you to attract mid to mid late career experts with established lives to that kind of physical relocation? Even if I told you both. Yeah. I mean, there's enough, there's enough trouble attracting community service doctors who just obviously a lot of them have huge commitments which are location-based. Exactly. But as a demographic, they are usually younger and have less responsibility, and it's still a problem. Massive problem. Yeah. And, and now here you had to think about, you know, value discovery and qualities. I might just not want to go live in Beaufort. Yeah. Personally, I don't think it's a bad place, but I can't tell someone, oh, ideologically, you have to love Beaufort or you have to love Luhamka, or you have to love Uniondale. You can't do that. Yeah. But if I could tell you, listen, I, I want to pay you, I want to buy, I want to buy 16 hours of your time per week. And you can be anywhere in the world for those 16 hours, as long as you're telehealth contactable. And so now you could have someone that... You could have a mid to late career person looking to scale down, transitioning their practice from a five-day practice to a three-day practice. And for the remaining two days of practice, they're in their home where their life is providing the kind of expertise and support and experience and insight that would either be impossible to access to that young doc in Union though, yeah. scared out of her mind. You do no fault of their own. Yeah. Or his mind. And also, what just adding to that in terms of a sort of career progression, because this podcast is emergency medicine based, I feel like one of the biggest uh, skills you, you learn that, or one learns in emergency medicine um, just during general experience, training, formal training, registrar time, etc. Is decision making capacity. Mm. You don't learn how to do a hysterectomy. Like that is a specialist gynae procedure mm. that you need to be able to do if you're a gynecologist. 
but your skill as an emergency physician is decision-making and risk stratification and saying what needs to happen, what does not need to happen and when it needs to happen. On the fly, at speed, at volume, when you're tired and hungry and afraid and, 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 and. it's so important what you're saying Exactly, now. And, and this sort of, this potential leads to so many job opportunities for people that are burnt out, for people that are tired of, of hitting the grind, of working shifts, of basically going full steam ahead for the majority of their life. And to be able to offer a job that hopefully one day we are in a position to pay for, or get paid for rather, um, a, a capacity where you can make decisions and provide a service and have a very value-adding um, job is, is phenomenal. Think about that that moment in which a junior isolated rural clinician makes a difficult decision on the care of a patient with senior support via this kind of telehealth connecting architecture, potentially. And it's only one potential way. Mm. That is a health and wellness service event. Yeah. And it, it genuinely takes into account the real needs and value and quality in all three domains. Will that patient have a better quality deal from all of that in terms of the quality of the decision? Yes. 100%, yeah. The, the junior clinician at that side, are they safer? Yes. More supported? Yes. Are they developing faster? Yes. The, the clinician on the other side, and this is about selection now, but... Is that person, are their needs in terms of how their life is set up valued? Yes. Are we creating an opportunity for them to transfer those years, decades of experience in a valuable way? Because, you know, healthcare people are people people, man. Yeah. Yes, we are doing that. And from the enabling environment point of view, does it create an enabling or a disabling environment? It's a profoundly enabling environment. enabling environment, yeah. So will this increase quantity and or quality of health and wellness service events on the platform? Definitely quality, probably quantity as well. Yes. Does it, is the balance designed? Yes. So really the only thing that we have to figure out is the economics. So yeah. you said earlier, hopefully one day we can afford, you know, to pay for posts like this. If the economics of this were, what, what alternatives are there out there? If the economics of this works even slightly, how could we afford not to do it, given yeah. our rural population, given how people struggle? So go back to that health justice, access to quality for everybody. Does this increase access to quality decision-making for everybody in that rural area? Yes. So from, a, from that, and then if, you know, from an ideological point of view, it makes sense. From a service, from a value proposition point of view, it makes sense. Let's link the two in terms of our constitutional and, and, and uh, moral mandate, which is to serve the health and wellness needs of people. Does this increase, does this move the game forward in our ability to, be, to provide quality responsive care? Yes. How can we afford not to do it? So now, this is an interesting thing now. Because... If we assume, because we're just thinking together, yes, no yeah. one's making any commitments or any policy decisions. <laughs> but now yeah. this this is important because how, how it works is you start off with an idea, which is what this is now, potentially. Yeah. Eventually, you'll know the truth. 
there'll be evidence of what works, how it works, and everything else. And there's a huge, a huge amount of logistics and trial and error and teething in, in between. Well, in between these two things is the jungle of assumptions. Yeah. Now, the jungle of assumptions is our enemy because you can get lost in there and never emerge. You could look at this thing and never even start because it's too intimidating. But the most horrible, sad, and dangerous thing that happens in the jungle of assumptions is that you stop in there and then you build on that. Yeah. And now you're building on shaky foundation. And so a big part as well of what our unit is mandated to do, of what CSI does, is to say, how can we... So we're not just like ideas people and chat people. No, no, that's not... That's easy. Once we have an idea, how do we connect through the jungle of assumptions to useful truth for everybody? Well, if you think about that clinician-facing admin support thing earlier, we, we inhabit the world, we explore widely, we look at in vivo and in vitro cases, we look at research and stuff, and that starts generating this idea. And then we go, well, who's done this in our environment? And then we go look there and we measure it. And then we do a phase one experiment. It's like, well, does it actually work? Well, that, then we do expansion experiments. Well, does it work? So... This might seem laborious, but you know that, that thing is like you, there are two pains, man. There's the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. You're gonna choose one of them. Yeah. And so if we have the discipline to explore widely and generate useful truths from that, then I'm very happy with putting in that laborious work. But if you skip this initial laborious work and build in the jungle of assumptions, then you're going to have big multi-hundred million rand programs potentially that don't necessarily even add value. Even worse, it's now impossible to know whether it adds value because the baseline was never known. The intervention is in there and the confounding. So now you'll never know and it started and with a really good idea. Now you're and, in the, or sometimes a really bad idea. Or sometimes a really bad idea. But now you, now you you will be doomed to suffer the pain. Um, on a much smaller scale, um, we've got a lot of low-hanging fruit to sort of pick in the in the healthcare system in South Africa. There's a lot of micro-level in individual unit. Um, sort of interventions that that many doctors pick up along the way at different places they work. This really works well. That really works well here. Can we incorporate this here where I'm working now? Or I learned something really nice at Varsity or during internship and someone taught me something really cool here and now I am in a different place where things are done differently and I want to suggest something. I want to um, make use of something that I know works well and I think would work well here. Um, and I've had a lot, a bit of personal experience in suggesting things and trying to make things happen, which get lost in a vacuum of management, from hospital management to substructure to this to that, and something that, in my perception, is really simple and I can do very quickly just gets 
delayed forever or not done at all because of a of a never ending stream of bureaucracy and approval and and authority needing to sign it off. So what would your suggestion be to somebody who is going from one place to another and wants to implement change? So a, f- a few observations, like because this is now my, the, I'm really interested in this is now my whole life that I'm interested in at the moment. The first is the assumptions that there are lots of low-hanging fruit in our system is incorrect. There aren't. There are a few highly valuable, high-hanging fruit that are manifesting in granular problems all over the system that are perceived as low-hanging fruit. And then when you go and pick on that low-hanging fruit, what you're actually pulling on is just a rope that's connected to something, and that thing is way bigger than you are. And then you will wonder why these things aren't solved. And so doing that again, if we come back to that jungle of assumptions and stuff, it's a bit more laborious, but it's way more useful. And so if you're interested in finding, um, let's call them quick wins rather, quick sustained wins, if you're interested in doing that, then stay with the problem longer. Don't react. Explore, consider, think. You have to have humility and courage. You have to have humility so you can see the world for what it is, not for what you hoped or wished or wanted it to be. And then you have to have courage so that you can react on what you find. And that will be the engine that's going to drive you forward. And so stay with the problem longer. But what you should never stop doing is you should never stop attacking those pleasure and pain points. That's the door. Those things that, that are wonderful and those things that are terrible, go there. That's where you, that's where your journey, but your journey won't end. Your journey will start there. And then equip yourself. Learn about complexity. Learn about system thinking. Learn about human-centered design. Learn about jobs to be done theory. Learn about what strategy actually is. Learn about iterative solution design. Learn about user experience design. All of these things. A few hours on YouTube and you'll be a different person. And then start incorporating that into your thinking. And start with that pain point. And be humble. And open up wide. Think wide. And then be courageous. Go where that vision takes you. And sometimes you'll find that your quick win is in fact just that. Quick win. Sometimes there is something that is just a silly little thing that can be fixed. And sometimes you'll find that your quick one is just the end of a rope. And you'll start pulling at that and pulling at that. And if you put in the work, you'll find a place that will actually make the difference. We've spoken before about um, ways in which we can learn from other industries and other people not in healthcare such as agriculture, military, um, actuarial science, uh, people who solve problems in a different way. How do we adapt different systems and different knowledge into our system? Well, the good news is that uh, it's, actually, it's actually not that difficult and it's a really joyful experience to do that. And so one or two brief observations. If, you know, we talk to people and say, oh, I'm so desperate for improvement. Ah. Well, where are you looking? Well, just around here where I am. Well, then you're not desperate enough for improvement. Because if you were desperate enough for improvement, you would go and look. 
for a solution. That's just that. The other thing is that the world is a big and wonderful place where good people, just like you and me and people listening to this podcast, have spent multiple lifetimes finding solutions to the problems we face now. It would be, it's, it's just not rational for us not to look everywhere. We said earlier that a person's illness or injury is a single cohesive entity and we superimpose these logistical brackets on it. But actually, a person's life is a single cohesive entity. And so what they need to eat and how they need to feel safe and how they want to add value, all of these things are connected around what a human being is. And so in the same way that we need to see if we can reorientate the logistical components of our system to be responsive to this thing, in our own minds as we explore, shouldn't we do the same? Shouldn't we look widely? Um, and then you, you mentioned a few of my favorites, so agriculture and soldiers and stuff like that. I know we've spoken about it and we, we kind of semi-jokingly refer to it. Like you, you, you don't learn mountain climbing from people who are good on ladders. You, you have to go learn from people where the stakes are high. Yeah. If, if the military, if they mess up, you're dead. If a farmer messes up, they starve. If an entrepreneur messes up, they're on the street. If a professional athlete messes up, one bad season, your career is over. That's the beginning of your life. There's a quote, I can't remember who said it, but they say, sit in the room with warriors. The conversation is different. So in the same way, um, explore widely, not to the exclusion of our own sector. Like all of this, none of these things are no, but no, but they're yes, and yes, and yes, and explore widely. So the, 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 the first thing is that at an individual level, the distance between wherever you are now listening to this and having just some basic skills and other perspectives is really just a few hours of effort on your own. It's so easy. People that love what they're doing, people that are proud of what they're doing, don't put up barriers. I've never found a people that are good at what they do and that are excited about what they do and that are proud of what they do, they pull you in. You just have to connect with them. Just talk to them. Like on LinkedIn, cold call people. If you're in, whatever, if you're interested in, if you're in, you're talking about actuarial sciences. A university of Stellenbosch, um, economic sciences has a faculty, logistic mathematical sciences within which there's a research group and a group of people looking at operations research. So operations research is a matter inter- multidisciplinary decision-making discipline that incorporates mathematics, modeling, and all sorts of things into it. They're the most wonderful people doing phenomenal work. They, they worked with um, mobile clinic outreach groups in Wittenberg for rural and agriculture, where they built mathematical models that included not just the hard variables that we would consider, like distance, time of start, all the, but also things like preferences, values, into their mathematical model, which means now those service managers can make changes in their service design and the model will show them what will happen. And then, so, you know, Mugendi Mrita is an African design academic and he said something that changed my life. He said, I participate, therefore I am. So the distance between where you are now 
and constructively growing and engaging with all the wonderful options that are out there in the world is just the decision to participate in your own life and in this journey in a more active way and then just a little bit of time and effort. And I promise you it's going to be such a joyful and fulfilling experience for you. It's not going to feel like work. You're going to do it rather than sitting and scrolling through the Netflix options because it's going to feed you and it's going to give you tools and it's going to give you power and agency. So at an individual level, it's very easy. Um, and what's nice is an organization is a group of individuals. So there, you know, I have a lot of faith in the senior management and the strategic leadership of this department. They're wonderful people. They work so much harder than people know. They're so much more committed than, than people might be aware of. The sacrifices that they make and the effort that they put in and the the thoughtfulness and the challenge of the decisions that they have to make is unthinkable and they do it with service. And if we can, as individuals, also explore those two things, connect, I've got no doubt about it. I want to, I want to tell everybody listening to this, whether you're in the country or not, and whether you're in health or not, and whether you're in the public sector or not, um, the, the, the need is out there. And we have wonderful, wonderful people working so hard to, to meet that need. And we're moving the dial and we'll continue to move the dial. Um, but I participate therefore I am. Thank you very much, Almira. I found that hugely interesting and I hope our listeners did too. Please like and subscribe on all your main podcast platforms and we hope to release an episode every month and that there will be about 10 episodes in season one of this podcast so stay tuned you can also contact me at dan d-a-n at badem.co.za and please also visit our website badem.co.za for plenty of uh, clinical posts blog posts and general stuff around phone made that's free open access medical education and there are lots and lots of resources from previous conferences and camps and things like that. So we will see you next time and thanks for joining us.